Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And happy Thanksgiving to you. And um, uh, it's a blessing to be able to share God's word with you this morning. What is the greatest need of humanity this Thanksgiving? What is the greatest need of humanity this Thanksgiving? What is it? Millions have lost jobs. Thousands more their health. Some lack secure access to food, others clothing, still others a place to call home. Uh, Racial, political tensions are high. We are all socially distanced, isolated, and many who have lost loved ones uh, are very much alone. These are dire needs, church. And if there's any way we can step up to help one another, we should. We should. But this morning, I would like to propose that the greatest need people have this Thanksgiving is not physical. And it's not uh, material, and it's not financial, and it's not even social, though these all have their place. No, our greatest need this Thanksgiving is for grace. Grace. And if you don't agree with me, that's okay, because I hope you will consider what I am to share. And my aim is to persuade you to this end, grace. Grace. In our English translation of the Bible, this word grace appears 131 times. So my first question to you this morning is, how much time do you have with me this morning? (laughs) Do you have somewhere you need to be for the next few days? (laughs) No. We will limit ourselves to one central text. And if you haven't yet, please turn there in your Bibles. It's Romans chapter 5. And we're looking specifically at two verses. Romans 5 verses 20 and 21. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the earliest Christians in Rome. And here, at the end of chapter 5, Paul speaks of the grace of God. And to show us why we need this grace so much, okay, why do we need this grace so much? To show us that, Paul takes us on a path, this is very important, beginning with God's law, moving to our sin, uh, before arriving at his grace. Okay? So this is the path we will follow this morning. God's law, our sin, and then his grace. So with that, let us read our text again for this morning. It's Romans 5, verses 20 and 21. 
Follow along in your Bibles. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. God, help us. Help us this morning to understand why you gave us your law. How it exposes the depths of our sin that we might truly appreciate and give thanks for your grace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. So we begin with the law. If you look at verse 20, what does Paul say? He says, now the law. The Greek word here for law is namos. Namos. And it can refer to the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, the Mosaic law. Or it can refer to the whole Old Testament or even the whole Bible, all the law and commands and rules of our faith. Now, at this point, if you're an outsider to Christianity, either here or watching online, you are probably rolling your eyes to hear Christians speaking about law. Laws, laws, laws. There's this notion in society, and we have to be honest about it, that we Christians are just plain legalistic. So many laws to follow. Have you heard that? Yeah. And if you're a Christian and if you're honest, be honest with me. Maybe you too at one time saw the Bible this way. An exhausting collection of laws. So when Paul says the law, we must first put aside our preconceptions and ask the question, why did God give us his law? Why? Well, to start, I want to I suggest a scenario to you. I want you to consider the alternative. What's the alternative? Would, would society have been better off if we had no laws? Just, I just want you to imagine with me for a moment. People could say or do whatever they wanted without consequence. Would you feel safe to live in a place like that? Would you? Would you? No. Why not? Because laws, we depend on laws for our well-being. We count on laws to protect us, to protect us. And God's law is no different. Way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, it'll come up on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Bible tells us the very first humans, Adam and Eve, lived in a garden that was governed by what? One law. Just one law. What was it? You can eat of every tree in this garden. Any tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. There's the law. You shall not eat. So why? Why did God give that law? It's given in the next verse. It says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. 
So you see, from the very beginning, God gave humanity his law. Why? To protect us. To protect us from death. To protect us from death. So the law protects us. What else does it do? What else does it do? Well, the law also reveals to us, think about this, the character and values of the lawgiver. I just want you to take some, listen to these examples so you can, we can flesh out that point. If a nation, if a nation holds laws which discriminate or marginalize or even worse, enslave its people, those laws speak poorly of what? The character and values of that nation. Does that make sense? In contrast, if, if a country establishes laws which provide for the welfare of, of the poor and the most vulnerable in that society, those laws speak well of the character and values of that country. So what's my point? When you examine the laws of God, the laws he has put forth to order and protect his kingdom, what do they say of his character? Of what he values? Paul tells us a few chapters later, Romans 7, verse 12, he says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Christian, as you read and study God's commands throughout the Bible, is this not what you have realized? Isn't this what you have realized? The laws speak of the lawgiver. They are holy as he is. They are righteous as he is. They are good as only he is. You know what? We are so accustomed to injustice and corruption, and evil in this world, is it not comforting to know that God's law is none of those things? Isn't that comforting? It's why the psalmist says, his law is our delight. Your law is my delight. Why does he say delight? Why are you delighted, Christian? You are delighted to be a part of a kingdom that is governed by such a holy, righteous, and good God. That's why. So God gave us his law to protect us, and he gave us his law to, for us to delight, that we might delight in his character and in his values. But Paul tells us in our text, what does he say? That God's law came to do something further. In verse 20, what does it say? His law came in to increase the trespass. Increase the trespass. So what does that mean? I remember many years ago when I first discovered that you could download music and movies and uh, watch uh, TV channels for free on the internet. You're looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, but your browser history would suggest otherwise that you know what I'm saying. You remember those days. 
I remember those days before it was the law came in, okay, before it was illegal, I want you to be honest. We all knew what we were doing was wrong. There wasn't a law yet, but we all knew what we were doing. This is content we would have otherwise paid for, right? But when the law came in, what happened? There was no longer any doubt this was theft. This was stealing. What am I saying? This is what the law does. It comes in and it reveals and it exposes our wrong. And after it does that, after the law exposes what you're doing, if you dare to continue doing what the law forbids, your trespasses do what? They, they increase. They increase. This is what Paul is saying. The law of God increases our trespasses. Yes, and how? Every time you sit down to read the word of God, you are becoming less and less ignorant and more and more aware of his laws, right? And the more and more you know, the more and more it becomes abundantly clear that your life is full of trespasses upon trespasses upon trespasses. The closer you get to this mirror, it's a mirror, the closer you get, the more and more the blemishes are coming to light. And what do you realize? You're not as good as you once thought you were. Every time you read the Bible, you're not as good as you once thought you were. It's humbling, isn't it? I was just thinking about this. As we draw closer to God and spend more time getting to know him, we are simultaneously becoming more guilty of breaking his holy law. Isn't that remarkable? It's humbling. And I think this is why, hear me, this is why the most mature believers I know are not those who are proud, puffed up, and self-righteous. The most mature believers I know are rather humble, meek, always aware of their ever-increasing sin. Sin. Which brings us to our second point, our sin. Look at verse 20. Paul says, when the law came in, what increased? Sin increased. Sin. So now that you understand the law, we can understand the depths of our sin. Because if you want a definition for sin, here it is. Sin is violating God's law. That's what sin is. At its core, sin is any violation of God's law is sin. And I want you to remember something. Humanity was created without sin, weren't we? We were placed in a paradise on earth, the Garden of Eden. Everything God had made in creation was what? What did he say? It was good. It was very good. 
So when Adam chose to sin, now remember, sin is violating God's law. So when Adam chose to violate God's law in the garden, that one law, the one law that was meant to do what? To protect and guard the human race. Through that one trespass, death entered the world. You heard um, Brother Albert reading the context of our passage today. Death entered the world. And since the fall, death has come for us all, hasn't it? I mean, are any, is anyone immune to death? Anyone? No. It affects us all. It affects the rich. It affects the poor. It affects those who are healthy. It affects those who are sick. It affects the well-known. It affects the lonely. It affects the conservative. It affects the liberal. It affects people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Death awaits us all. And as sad as that sounds, I don't want you to look it away, as sad as that sounds, when Adam sinned, it was not only physical death that entered the world. It's not only physical death, but spiritual death. Spiritual death. Now what does that mean? I want you to look at verse 19 if you can. Romans 5, verse, the verse just before our text. What does Paul say in verse 19? He says, For as by the one man's disobedience, what happened? The many were made sinners. The many were made sinners. I hope you see what Paul is saying here. This is not elementary stuff anymore. Through that one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. From that very day, the nature of humanity changed. Humanity was good when God created us. But from that day, our nature changed. We were no longer good. We were now born what? Sinners. We were born sinners. There was no part of us untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, our bodies. This is what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. It's why you don't have to teach a young child to rebel. Have you ever thought about that? It's become real and real, more and more real to me. You don't have to teach a young child to rebel. You have to teach them to obey, but not rebel. Why? It's in their nature to do this. My friends, this is who we are. I hope you understand the gravity of what I'm saying, and I want you to write this down if you can. We are not sinners because we sin. I used to think that. Don't you? I'm a sinner because I sin. No. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Do you see the gravity of what's happened? The effect of the fall? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because 
This is who we are. We are sinners. Some of you may say, well, hold on a moment. That, that's not fair. Right? That's not, I wasn't in the garden. That was Adam's choice. I was, I was, how, why am I a sinner? Well, just like a father's choice can affect his family, you all know that, right? Father's choice can affect his family profoundly. Adam's choice has affected every one of us. It's true. Well, others of you may say, I don't even have a Bible. How can I be guilty of violating God's law if I don't even know what it is? Right? People will bring that, 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 that accusation or that, or that opposition. What if I don't know God's law? Well, even to them, Paul responds earlier in Romans 2.15. Look what he says. Even for those who don't have God's written law, this is what he says, the work of the law is still written where? On your hearts. And then you might say, well, well prove it. How, how do you? Your conscience. You have a conscience. Every human has a conscience. Your conscience bears witness that God has written his law on every human heart. What is Paul saying? With or without the Bible, all people have God's moral law written on their hearts and their conscience is the proof. So, so that when you go against your conscience, you're just as guilty as the person who is going against the written law. Spurgeon summarizes it this way. I think it's, it's just it's beautiful how he puts it all together for us. And I'll just bring that quote up on the screen. Here's what we've lost. We as Adam's offspring were heavy losers by the offense of our first father, the head of the human race. We have lost, look at what we've lost. We have lost the Garden of Eden and all its delights, all its privileges, all its immunities. We've lost communion with God. We've lost freedom from death. What else? We've lost our first honor. We've lost our health. We've become subjects of pain, weakness, suffering, and death. This is the effect of the fall. This is the effect of the fall. This is why in verse 21 of our text, look what Paul says in verse 21. He says, sin reigned in death. Do you see that in your Bibles? Sin reigned. What does it mean to reign? It means to exert the highest influence and control. That's what it means to reign. And this is what sin does, doesn't it? Sin influences and controls and causes universal death. That's what it does. This is why I said to you from the outset, this Thanksgiving, your greatest need cannot merely be physical. You can't. Your greatest need this Thanksgiving cannot just be material or, or financial or even social. Why? Because even if you meet all those temporary needs, 
If you are a sinner, eternal death still awaits. Does that make sense? And it is here that we arrive at our final point and the basis of thanksgiving. The basis of thanksgiving for the Christian. Look at verse 20. He says, For when sin, where sin increased, what happened? Grace abounded all the more. How beautiful it was to sing earlier today about the grace of God. Grace. What is grace? What is grace? Grace is the undeserved favor of God. That's what it is. If you want a definition for grace, it's the undeserved favor of God. So I want to break that down. First, grace is undeserved. What does that mean? It means you don't deserve it. You don't deserve you, you, you didn't earn this. You have no right to claim this. Just as a dead person cannot make themselves alive. You get that, right? A dead person cannot make themselves alive. Just like that, we could do nothing to save ourselves from sin. Nothing. So first, grace is undeserved. But second, grace is favor from God. It's the favor of God. God favors you. Just think about that for a moment. He favors you. What does it mean to favor? It means to show kindness beyond what is due. That's what God is doing to you. Those of you who are saved, those of you who are Christians, God has shown you kindness beyond what is due. He cares for you. He loves you. This is the undeserved favor of God. That's grace. So I want you to, I want you to tell me something. When sin increases, what really should happen? I want you to think. Think of our justice system. Think of our legal system. When sin increases, what should happen? The punishment should increase. Isn't that how our legal system works? We punish those who sin more with greater punishment. That's fair. That's fair. But what is Paul saying? He says, when your sin increased... God's grace did not just uh, keep pace with your sin. It abounds all the more. It abounded. What does it mean? It's one thing to punish you for what you deserve. That's called justice, right? To punish you for what you deserve is called justice. To not punish you for what you deserve, that's called mercy. So what does it mean then for God to show you grace? Undeserved favor. It means that when you, the prodigal son or daughter, returns from the pigsty, broken and desperate, you are not only not punished, you're not shown justice, you're not only forgiven, you're not, you're not only shown mercy, but you are cleaned of all that mud. You are given new robes and shoes and a ring that you could never afford. You are welcomed into the family that you do not deserve. You are given rights that you could have never claimed on your own. You are thrown a feast which you by no means earned. Why? Why all of this for you? Why? 
Because this is the abounding grace of God. This is the abounding grace of God. So Paul tells us in verse 21, look at verse 21 now, that as a result of this grace, as a result of God's grace, he's given us an incredible gift. Look at verse 21. What is that gift? He's given us the gift of righteousness. Do you see it there? Righteousness. We covered righteousness a few weeks back, so I'm not going to belabor this point. Only let me remind you that it is because of God's grace that he's willing to take the perfect, morally perfect, forensically perfect life of Jesus Christ and impute that righteousness to you. To you! You know you had no way of earning this favor, right? You had no way of... You had no way. We've covered this. You did not fulfill the requirements of the law. What did the law do to you? It only showed how much you have trespassed. (laughs) Right? You did not fulfill the requirements of God's law, but Jesus did. Jesus did. Think about that. Jesus did fulfill those requirements. And God, because of his grace, is willing to give you that righteousness as a gift. What a gift. But that's not all. Look at, look at, look at the next part. This gift leads to something even greater. Just look, look at the text, verse 21. More precious than anything the world can offer. What is the gift leading to? Verse 21. Leading to eternal life. Eternal life life for you. I just want, I just want to take this, I, I had to pause here just to remember what is what we have in Christ. Do you realize that at death you're going to depart from this life and you're going to go to a place that is far, far better with Christ. That's your, that's your future. That's what you have to look forward to. Your body will be immune from all pain. All the aches and pains. Your body will be immune from death. And all those light momentary afflictions of this earth, right? We all have a list. All the afflictions of this earth will pale in comparison to the glory that's ahead. Won't even compare. You can't even compare them. The guilt and shame of your past will be removed. Some of you are sitting here, you're thinking of the shame of the sin you've committed. The guilt you have, and you're carrying with you every day, every year you've been carrying this. But in Christ, all the guilt and shame is removed. You will no longer sin. Think about that. You will no longer commit sin. You won't even be tempted to. For there, sin is no more. Sin is no more. Are you getting a picture of this? This place? You will find rest from your weariness. Are you weary? You will find rest there. You will experience joy unlike anything you have ever known. 
And this is, this is the, when you arrive, and I can't wait for this day, and I hope that we arrive and we're on the shore together and we can talk about this when we're there. But when you arrive and you first see the sights and you see the sounds and you hear the sounds, here's what we'll say. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, here's what we'll say. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. Not even, no heart of man has ever even imagined. Think of the greatest thing you can imagine. That's not even close to what God has in store. What God has prepared for those who love him. Church, is this not favor? What is this? This is favor. Will anyone do this for you? Would anyone do this for you? Does it not fill your heart with thanksgiving? And if you do not know this grace, Paul ends verse 21 and he tells us how you can receive the grace. Look at the last line. He says, Righteousness leading to eternal life through whom? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, there's only one way. There's only one way through which God gives humanity this grace. There's only one way, through faith in his son, Jesus. Why is it only Jesus? Because it was only Jesus who obeyed the law of God. If you have someone else, tell me. You don't. It was only Jesus who obeyed the law in full and then died on the cross so that your ever-increasing sin upon sin, trespass upon trespass upon trespass might be justly punished. Only Jesus did that. It was only Jesus who rose from the dead so that your life can be made righteous and your eternity saved from death. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And so as Paul closes, he reminds us with one word that it's not enough to simply know all of these things. We've spoken about God's law. We've spoken about the depths of our sin. We've spoken about God's grace, the righteousness he gives us as a gift, the eternal life that follows. But it's not enough to simply know these truths. What does he say? Jesus must be our what? Our? Our? Lord. Jesus must be our Lord. What, what, what does Lord mean? It means master. The one to whom you belong. And so, if Jesus is your Lord, this Thanksgiving, I want to encourage you, no matter what other needs you may be facing, and I know we all are facing a host of needs, different needs, real needs. But if Jesus is your Lord, I tell you, rejoice. Rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. Give thanks, because our greatest need is met by the grace of God of God. As the worship team comes, I'm going to pray and close us off. Why don't you stand and let's just pray and, and thank God for his grace. Father God, I just, we just, we stand in awe of what you have done for us.
God, you gave us your law as a guardian, as a tutor, to show us our need for Christ. The law was our, was our guardian until Christ came so that now we can be justified, we can be made righteous by faith in Jesus. Oh Lord, as we, as we reflected on your law, we are, we are just overcome by the fact that we are full of sin. From our very birth, in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born sinners. And there was no way we could get ourselves out of this pit. And then came your grace. The undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Your kindness and care and love to us. And because of your grace, you gave us righteousness leading to eternal life all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now as we, as we sing this song, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. As we sin, sing that, O oh God, help us to understand just what you have done for us. Fill us with thanksgiving, especially as, as the world celebrates or as Canada celebrates Thanksgiving. Lord, help us, O oh Lord, to have a true basis for thanksgiving. Your grace. We pray these things in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.